0: The Irish Times had, had headlines like the Met Metairn building can't withstand the Irish climate. So there was a certain irony that our own weather was attacking this building that was meant to, like, you know, document it.
1: Hello and welcome to What Do Buildings Do All Day? A podcast on the matter of people in buildings and buildings that matter. My name is Emmett Scanlon and in this sixth episode I talk to two men in Canada and Cabra. Architect and writer Cormac Murray and graphic designer Eamon Hall and we talked about the Met Eireann Office Building in Glasnevin, Dublin. Cormac and Eamon recently published a zine, which is a short, small publication on this building. You'll know the building. It is a silver-grey pyramid with a top cut off. It's often on the television. It is where the weather is studied and analysed for the nation, and it appears on our screens when the weather makes the news. Designed by architect Lee McCormack, in the podcast we discussed this and one other building, just a little bit down the road, the Phibsborough Shopping Centre because Eamon and Cormac, under the banner of Fibsborough Press, have actually published a zine on both buildings. I began by asking Cormac to tell me why he decided to research and write about this building, and from there the conversation expands to talk about how to make publications specifically about buildings, how a graphic designer might seek to make a publication that evokes the personality of a building, if print is a dying medium, and why more people don't, as Cormac so eloquently puts it, inconvenience themselves to write and debate buildings in this way.
0: I suppose Eamon and I had just finished up our um, publication on the Fibsper Center, and like there was an opportunity then to to do a second publication, and I suppose there was a temptation to maybe look at a similar building in terms of like a concrete, much maligned, controversial structure like the Fibsper Center, which maligned and adored by some. But we decided to go with something that that looked and felt pretty different. Um, otherwise, we kind of would have started a series, I suppose, on concrete architecture, concrete modern architecture in Dublin. And the Metairn interested me for a number of reasons, partly because it's, it's such a unique building in its form. Um, it, it's pretty striking. So the Metairn is the um, Irish Weather Service and the building is a four-story truncated pyramid in shape. And that is a pyramid with the, with the peak cut off. And it's currently clad in a metal panel, although that was not the original cladding and the windows of the building kind of follow the slope of the facade. And so it seems pretty unique um, in its context with the exception of half a kilometer down the road. And there's a church, Our Lady of Delours by Vincent Gallagher, which is also a pyramid shape. And I suppose pyramids is something you might associate more quickly with church architecture than um, office architecture in this case. And the Med building was designed by Liam McCormack, who most architects are are very familiar with for his church architecture, predominantly in the north of Ireland. So it, it interested me from the outset to understand how this renowned church architect came about to do a weather station and office building. And that was our starting point. Pretty early on in the research, it emerged that there was a connection with this Swiss architect and a particular building by the Swiss architect, uh, the Faroe House, designed by Justus Dahinden. And um, so that preceded the Met Aaron uh, by about a, about a decade. The Faroe House was designed in 1967 and um, Met Aaron was completed in 19... 19- Seventy nine, And uh, McCormick and his associates were, were pretty upfront about the fact that they took inspiration from this building. They actually first saw it on a sailing trip to Zurich on the lake. And it too is a sort of truncated pyramid shape. He, and it was clad in this vibrant uh, corten steel when they, uh, when they first saw it. So looking into De Hinden and I suppose the theory around his work, it turns. It turns out there was a whole wealth of um, really interesting content there. He was inspired. Well, he was inspired by a number of things, but he sort of boiled his architecture down to, to three distinct elements. There is the um, structure, the form, and the spirit. So, so the structure is the kind of programmatic um, design of a building, uh, uh, and also the construction, obviously. Um, so, in the case of the Pharaoh House, he decided on this pyramid building for very practical pragmatic reasons that um, it allowed it allowed the building to overcome some planning restrictions on that site. Um, it, it gave it less of an appearance of a tall building and also it allowed more access to light on the lower levels. And then in terms of the gestalt of the form of the building, it's pretty iconic and, and it's like an immediate brand um, for that building. I mean, de Hinden described in later interviews how they kind of had it, shrouded in hoarding when they were actually building it and then they took down the hoarding and this pyramid was revealed and people just had to live with it at that stage so you can understand how the shape even in somewhere pretty advanced in terms of architecture like Zurich was iconic at the time and the third aspect of his uh, work which is very interesting tying into his own church architecture and then uh, I suppose Lee McCormick's background as a church architect is the Geist of the Spirit. And he was drawing inspiration from antiquity, uh, in particular, various societies like Assyrian, Mesoamerican, uh, Sumerian um, architecture, where the buildings or the kind of temples they designed were all about ritual and, I suppose, a religious aspect of worshipping the sky. And he was very interested in buildings that bear the heavens in his in his words that kind of rise up and reflect the sky uh, and the weather conditions. So he he coined the term cosmoform, which kind of became the title of our current um, publication. And it was we don't know to what extent Liam McCormack was aware of the theory surrounding um, de Hinton's architecture, but it's just wonderfully appropriate that he designed a weather station building around this idea of a cosmoform or a building that worships the sky. I mean, McCormick described how like the main aspect of the brief he was given by the meteorologists was they wanted a good clear sky view. So all these uh, windows in the building, like just take out the kind of foreground context of the surroundings and then just look up at the kind of dynamic cloudy Irish sky, which is really wonderful. So Looking at the Met Aaron, through the lens of de Hinden, de Hinden's research gave it a whole new life for us, which was um, really fascinating. And de Hinden was very similar to McCormack in many ways. He, he on, on the one hand, he designed all, all kinds of buildings like um, offices, restaurants, hotels, but he also was really famous for his churches. He, he designed about 22 churches over his career in predominantly in Switzerland and Germany, but then also in Africa and McCormick uh, visit him in his office and also would have claimed inspiration from some of his churches for many of the ones that he designed in Ireland. So it was just really fascinating to us to think that there's this office building or something like as technical as a a weather station could have this spiritual connection about something greater. He wrote a book, uh, an influential book in 1967, I think, um, called New Trends in Church Architecture, which may have been where um, Sorry, that's the Hinden, and that may have been where he he first came to McCormick's attention. But uh, while he he was a religious man himself, he also was really influenced by the likes of the metabolists, Archie Graham and Cedric Price, and um, um, Buckminster Fuller. Buckminster Fuller, sorry. So it kind of goes against the usual idea of of a modernist architect that you know embraces technology and progress. That at the same time he he was really interested in this emotional and and spiritual side to his architecture. And I think that that is the same type of architect that um, McCormick was, you know, he was very much trying to make contemporary um, buildings, but at the same time was trying to connect into something deeper, uh, to do with the context and the surroundings.
1: One of the things you do in both the pieces you've written so far um, for for Press, which is, as you mentioned, the Fibster Shopping Centre and the Meta Office, the MetAaron Office Building, is that you both track its origins, let's say in terms of creative origins of the architect uh, and how the building might have come to exist from a programmatic or a client point of view too. But you also seem to be interested in you know, what's often termed the controversy of that building, where... A single building or might step across into other discussions or debates. Like, for example, in the Glass Nevin building, you talk about how the cladding failed and how the building was then discussed in Parliament. Can you talk a little bit more, maybe, about why, specifically about the life of that building after it was constructed, the Glass Nevin Met, Met building, um, and why you kind of approach writing about architecture and their stories of buildings in, in that way?
0: Yeah, sure. It, interestingly, as you mentioned, the um, the lemon building, uh, the Met Aaron, was originally clad in um, limestone panels. And then in 19, in the 1980s, the panel the cladding started to fail. And there was like water absorption and then in the drying process, um, tension on the surface of them. And they started to kind of pop off the of facade. Uh, and it was kind of a, a big embarrassment, I suppose, for Met Aron at the time. Y- you know, like the Irish Times had, had headlines like the Met Aron building can't withstand the Irish climate. And um, so there was a certain irony that our own weather was attacking this building that was meant to, like, you know, document it. But, but this failure, it, it wasn't something McCormick himself was um, embarrassed about because his original tent- intention was to clad the building in a Welsh slate panel which obviously would have had a completely different aesthetic to what uh, eventually was built. But at the time, there was a kind of growing trend to try and promote Indigenous Irish building materials and products. And I suppose because there was a state involvement in in this building, they pushed to use a a native um, product. They had to kind of U-turn and at some stage throughout the design process revert to this Ballinasloe limestone. Um, which had a greater porosity, uh, in a technical term, to to the uh, slate and eventually caused this failure. So, I mean, many people would think that, that, that this would like be something, a, a kind of scar on the building for the likes of McCormick, but he attested uh, later in his life, when when Robert Bala was actually commissioned to paint a portrait of him, he asked Lee McCormick to kind of hold a model uh, of one of his buildings in, in the portrait. Uh, And he hoped that uh, McCormick might take uh, Burt, his sort of most celebrated church, or one of his more celebrated churches. Uh, But McCormick insisted on holding um, the Metairn model. um, And he he was like, really even then, when it was being reclad at the time, he was still really proud of the building. To answer the second part of your question, what what interests me personally in, in architectural writing and discussion is, I suppose there's a tendency in the general public certainly to kind of talk about a building in a kind of immediate, uh, aesthetic way. So like it's treated like an object and it's discussed for its merit. So people, some people would like, for example, the Fisborough center would just call it an ugly building and that's that. But I think there's a much more interesting second discussion to have, which is, you know, an object in a place and in time. So If you look at the Philipsborough Centre, I think what's most interesting for me is how did a building that seems so different end up in this location, in in this neighbourhood of Dublin? And, you know, as you're aware, it's a fascinating story about, like, investment from a Canadian billionaire who brought Canadian associate architects over and talked about viewing Dublin from a helicopter and, and designing that way. And this completely different vision for an area, which, you know, I think the vast majority of people who are familiar with the building wouldn't think of this kind of broader, broader discussion surrounding a building. And, and similarly, the Mederran building—I mean, it's one that uh, certainly a huge number of the Irish public would be familiar with, and because it's always summoned up on news reports when we have like extreme weather, and also because it's just so unique looking in that setting that a lot of people would pass by it, maybe glance at it, but they don't spend any time with it. So. It's interesting for me to kind of, I find it a way to have a discussion with someone. You catch their attention by bringing up um, something that they know well and, and have seen many times. And then, you know, you end up talking to them about something they never would even have thought to consider, which is, you know, really rewarding and interesting, I find.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think what both, I mean, you know, you talk about the building being summoned up on, on television to show Mm -hmm to show it's like a physical representation of, of the act of meteorology in Ireland. You know, we, when, when we see the building, we know that the weather is being discussed and there are human beings in the building researching and analyzing and obviously communicating their knowledge of what's going to happen or what has happened in weather conditions. So I think what's happening in both essays as well is that there's this really interesting um, attempt and really essential attempt, I think, to try and Acknowledge also the influence of buildings on our understanding of other things in the world, be it the weather, be it our local identity, or the histories of materials, or shopping, or commerce, or you know. So it's it's a very kind of potent way I think of framing framing the work. And then, of course, uh, to turn to you, maybe Eamon, you've you're a graphic designer, and and you guys have collaborated and worked together then on making these essays, which are in words, into a, a physical artifact with images and drawings, and then obviously gathered together under, under your creative influence, which is, which is through design. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because interestingly, you've had two publications to date, and they're both different. So it's not a series in the traditional sense where someone might understand there to be exactly the same identity in terms of a design in a book. You're, you, is there a, is there a relationship between how you're approaching each design with regard to each building, or h- how do you how do you start to translate the world of the building into the world of a of a of a printed document?
2: Well, I think Cormac already touched on this, and the the publications are very different. They look different. They're different formats, different paper, and stylistically they take very different approaches. We had considered after doing forgotten frontier of making a series but i suppose that didn't really interest me too much because essentially what we would have been doing is taking the same format and changing the images and changing the text so from a design perspective it would have been uh, less interesting and one of the reasons i approached cormac initially to do the first shopping center scene was because i was looking for a project where I could kind of flex on design muscles and do the type of design that I was interested in doing. So when we came around to doing Cosmoform, I felt, well, why not do something completely new? And also the experience of designing the Forgotten Frontier, the physical shopping center scene um, was pretty instructive actually, because throughout that process, I kind of learned a few things and With most creative projects, you kind of learn from your mistakes. Not that there was any major mistakes, but it kind of showed that there was opportunities to design this sort of thing in a new way or approach the use of imagery or graphics um, in a new way. So when we came to Cosmoform, I didn't want to just repeat what we'd already done. I wanted to take it down a new path. I suppose one of the major changes is that The Forgotten Frontier is very much a traditional booklet format so it's i think 32 pages if i can remember correctly and you move from page to page and it's continuous text throughout there's images dotted throughout so in a a way it's quite traditional cosmoform is slightly more unusual in terms of its form it's both a booklet and a poster so one of the things i kind of learned from forgotten frontier was that when you buy and consume a zine in that format it's often slightly disposable because unlike a larger book with maybe a hundred odd pages it doesn't actually end up on your shelf so it often ends up in a drawer because it's it's quite small and it's quite lightweight it doesn't really have the the physical weight of a you know a coffee table book and even in my office here now i'm looking at my the books on my shelf every now and again you'll spot something and you might pull it down and read it again, so larger books have a different kind of life. You can look at them again and again, whereas a zine being kind of small and disposable, like I have a drawer here that has about ten or fifteen zines in it, so they kind of get put away and I, I wanted to think of a way with cosmoform to avoid that kind of short shelf life. so I came up with the idea of making it both a booklet and a poster. The idea being that when you you first read the essay you're reading it in a booklet form so quite traditional turning page after page with continuous text but once you've finished it you can open up and kind of fold out the uh, the format and it becomes a poster so it has a second life um the poster if you like it, it can go on your wall because it's quite visual that was kind of what informed the, the format.
1: So does that, I mean, in a way, does that imply like the, the next format is, I suppose what I'm intrigued about is the, is the relationship between the format of the zine and the building. And one could, and I probably do draw kind of connections in the way that I read or observe the printed document mm-hmm. of, of the Final Frontier and the shopping centre in terms of, of its in terms of how you've presented it, in terms of its weight of, I don't know how to describe this, um, but let's say in, in the cosmic form, there's obviously a lightness of touch, in, even in terms of the use of the metallic print, which sort of does evoke some sense of character of the building. Um, even subconsciously, it's not literal. It's also not, not overloaded with photographs. You've commissioned someone to make an abstract drawing of the, or kind of an interpretive drawing of the, of the form of the building. So maybe it's a question for both of you to try, uh, because I think there's there's um, conversations to be had about the relationship between publication and documentation of architecture, and buildings, you know, uh, and how buildings, as you've pointed out, are traditionally presented, with just text and image after image and image after image, and somehow those books, not always, but often tend to be attempts to stand in for the experience of the building or as records of the building, rather than than trying to evoke some sense of the building you know it's and what your publications seem to be starting to do simply because they're different but also I think in the in the character and form of them is to is to reflect some nature that you guys are divining out of 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 the building itself
2: yeah absolutely like I think on a very basic design level what we've tried to do is like you've said uh, kind of evoke a sense of the building so with the Forgotten Frontier. Initially, I thought that was a brutalist building. It turned out uh, in Cormac's research that it's not technically brutalist, but I was quite enamored with the idea of brutalism at the time. So when I was thinking about how it would be designed, I tried to evoke the sense of rough kind of concrete and the kind of materiality of of brutalism, which is quite direct and, you know, it's not very, well, it's quite, there's often things that are exposed or untreated. It's quite rough the paper i used on the cover had a kind of a rough texture to it so when you pick up pick up the zine either consciously or subconsciously you're that kind of sense of rough concrete is being evoked similarly the binding was a type of binding called a loop binding where the binding is exposed so that was kind of exposing the construction of the zine so these are kind of little touches that Trying kind of evoke a sense of the building. Cormac's essay for Forgotten Frontier is very much a kind of a document of the history of the building. So when it came to using imagery, I got my sister, who's a photographer, Brefni, to essentially document the building. So we went down three or four times and we shot the building. So that was very much a straightforward documentary approach to how to represent it. And when it came to Cosmoform, the themes of the essay were very different. It wasn't a straightforward documentary piece. It was more about theory and all the ideas that Cormac has touched on um, and how they kind of swirled around in the life and the work of both of these architects, exemplified by the two buildings that it focuses on. So instead of basically doing a kind of straightforward documentary series of images, um, I decided that it might be more interesting to commission a piece of illustration that captures the kind of essence of the essay. Obviously, there was the, the problem as well as um, fair houses in, in Zurich, so we couldn't just head down with a camera and shoot it. So it was kind of a needs-must situation as well. But another thing that it, it kind of appealed to me about this idea of illustration was that it wasn't really something I'd seen much of in books about architecture. Um, architecture is quite uh, rational thing there's often lots of maths and numbers it's quite objective and i think that's that, that's the way a lot of architects think so i often get the feeling they're drawn towards technical drawings axonometric uh, isometric drawings which kind of speak to the way that they work and they think and um, something that you don't see a lot of is uh, representations of architecture that are more expressive that are more about the emotion of architecture, how it makes you feel. And I think one of the central themes of Cosmoform is how the work and the thought of these two architects kind of was swirling around, and particularly McCormick taking from the Hinden and implementing some of his ideas. So I thought an illustration that kind of captures the emotion of this interplay of ideas and, and themes and theories would kind of evoke a sense of Cormac's essay a bit more viscerally. And like you said, then, there's other kind of considerations, particularly material considerations. So um, the the paper is quite glossy, and the the illustration is printed in silver ink on white paper, so it's kind of ethereal. It's it's not very bold. It's quite, there's a lot of overlapping lines. So there's, there's a kind of an aesthetic approach to it that um, was an attempt to capture that kind of the relationship that these two architects had.
0: Yeah, and I I think another thing that's very different about the two publications is that the Fibsburg Centre, we sort of narrowed our scope to look at the Fibsburg Centre in its context and just talked about that. Whereas like Cosmoform isn't specifically about one building. It's really about two buildings, I suppose but then also like, you know, the broader sphere of influence surrounding them. Like our illustrations have the Pharaoh House, the med building, and then like a ziggurat in Iraq. So I, I think it makes sense to me the way Eamon came up with this design that sort of homogenized that all into one uh, consistent color, screen, uh, color scheme and a sort of like, folding piece that uh, represented something much bigger than one building where you kind of like have a rigid sort of documentary sort of way of describing it you know i
1: mean i really like talking about books on architecture with people who aren't architects or people who make books because sometimes i think there's a tendency now and i could be could be generalizing but maybe it's useful for the conversation where either there's a significant investment required in the book so you you have to make a book about a building and it's going to cost significant amount of money and time, and therefore it has to be relatively exhaustive and it has to follow certain traditions to sit within a canon of books and architecture, almost like you know the archive or the catalogue of that building, and it becomes a fixed thing in itself. And somehow, in my view, often it, it is useful for the building but can move away a little bit from what the building is. It becomes it's very concerned with itself. And then there's the, the world that you touch a little bit of on, Eamon, which is the world of the zine or the disposable or the contemporary... A recent contemporary thing in architecture of newspapers where stuff is made to be thrown away because we don't have much money or there's, a, there's also a demand for things to be light. But somehow what it seems to be interesting is if there's some middle ground there where you can make something that can be ephemeral in, in, the, in, in one sense, but also attach itself like a limpet to the side of that concrete building as part of its narrative, as part of its story, as part of its value, as part of its future history. And, and yet it, it, it doesn't have to have the weight of it being an exhaustive, expensive, elaborate tome. Do you know what I mean? I think that's, that's kind of interesting. Fipsborough um, Press was established out of the first publication, the Frontier publication of Fipsborough, is that right? And is, is it going to continue in, in this format? Is it, a, is, it a, is, it, is it only to do with these kinds of documents of buildings or has it other, other interests?
2: Um, yeah, it was it was born out of the original zine. Um, so it was actually it kind of came to came to me pretty late in the day. I think it was a couple of days before I was sending the zine to press, and I think maybe me and Cormac had discussed doing a second project. So it occurred to me this would probably be a good time to come up with a kind of a an overarching platform or something to bind these two together otherwise they'll. if we do a second one they'll kind of just exist in isolation so fibs were came to me pretty quickly um so the original zine was 2017 and uh cosmoform is 2020 so there's quite a bit of time in between um and i have had a couple of projects that just didn't take off for one reason or another but it seems to be kind of building up steam again i've got um a book that I'm hoping to go to print with this week, which is a, pho- a, ph- a photography book with photographer Miles Shelley. So that's a um, completely different topic. Like, Fibser Press was never intended to be solely about architecture. It just so happened that it started with an architectural zine. And because myself and Cormac worked so well together and we enjoyed doing it, and it was a relative success on its own terms, that we decided to do another one. And we're already talking about another one. So Absolutely, architecture is something that is going to continue on Fibs Press, but I would like to broaden it out and do more, do more work on photography or essentially whatever comes my way. The, the idea really is to provide a platform to publish on topics that I find interesting or could do with a design perspective, something like photography um where a designer can add really add to a project, elevate the production values, the design, and provide a platform for people to get the final product before people and sell it online. So it's it's kind of covering a lot of bases. So I'm hoping over time when more people find out about it that um, people might come to me and say, do you think this might be something for future press? So that'll be the ideal situation further down the line.
1: One thing that comes up in the uh, description of the Met Aaron building and McCormick's practice and his work, and I think this is—I mean—I think architecture and graphic design are, you know, visual design are distinct and different disciplines in, in many senses, and that's not often discussed enough. But one thing that I think is in in common, and this is probably in common in many creative practice, is this is this oscillation between external influence and sort of internal desire and ambition, and and it's very clear in the in the McCormick building, in the way that you write about it, Cormac, uh, you know, about his life as a sailor or his, obviously his fascination with Zurich or um, his work in churches. And, and so he's all, you know, you have all of these things going on in your world and in your brain at a kind of pragmatic, ordinary level. And then you've obviously intellectual and creative forces coming from elsewhere. And sometimes through your work, you, you reconcile those. And I think in my experience of working with designers like yourself, Eamon, there's always this oscillation back and forth between this is a very obvious thing to say, but, but, you know, I can say, well, your book beautifully evokes the building, but you're also saying, well, I'm also responding to the history and canon of things that interest me within my own world and my own culture. And I think that's also true of writing, Cormac, where writing is not just only a descriptive act. You know, it's not just a technical act. You're not writing a, a set of assembly instructions. You're also writing with reference to other cultures of writing and histories of writing and, I wonder whether the pair of you maybe talk a little bit about that in your own work, about how you oscillate back and forth between this, this individual ambition to achieve something, which is, in your, both your cases in this work, is independent. Nobody's commissioning you to do it, really. It's it's something that's driving you both to do it. You want to make it happen because you want to make, make a contribution, but also have this opportunity, as you said, aiming to flex your design muscles. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that? And why would you bother doing this stuff? And what, you know, <laughs> in what sense, but also Good how question. do you... How do you use it as, a, as an opportunity to, to go back and forth between those
0: things? I suppose, um, from my point of view, when, when myself and Eamon, like, both working regular weekday jobs, meet up to talk about projects like this, it's not because you know, anyone is telling us to do this or there's someone like, trying to you know, manipulate us into doing this. It's, it's like a real passion project. So from the outset, it's just, it's just really nice to work with someone who's like, willing to inconvenience themselves a lot to make, to kind of will something into existence. And I think that's what I find with with writing in general, That like you really have to want it to happen and you have to, you know, put the time aside and, and, and force it out there in the world. Like as Eamon described, Forgotten Frontier was 2017, but I think we might have started that in 2015, Eamon. <laughs> God, and, yeah, and Co- Cosmoform really has been an on and off three-year project like uh, for both of us. So, you know, like my original attraction to writing as, as opposed to architectural practice, uh, like while I, while I do work as an architect, it's that there's such a quick turnaround, supposedly, uh, with writing projects that, you know, you can kind of get a bit exhausted or disillusioned by how long it takes to put a building together and kind of see it through every stage of its existence. Whereas with a writing project, you can sort of dive into something, explore it, learn a lot, and then sort of package it and forget it and move on. And and that's really rewarding to get that. But what's particularly interesting about our collaborations and yes, we do are bringing different influences to it, but it's the kind of combination of our two perspectives, I think, which which puts something together that I could not have done on my own by any means and, and, and Eamon could not have done on his own. So like I, I'm used to writing for architects uh, and limiting it, limiting it to the architectural community. Whereas even from like just having to discuss the topic uh, with Eamon, it, it usually brings it to somewhere different which is always better i think and and in terms of like just like writers that i find very appealing it's very often ones who are not limited just to architecture like whether they have you know involvement in design as well or they might write for more general public publications like people like edwin heatcoat like for financial times who you know, has this like archive online of of all this just writing about design, like, and I just find that so intriguing that it's more of a fluid approach to uh, writing that you're not trying to limit yourself to one field only. So yeah, bring bringing the kind of early drafts of these essays over to Eamon and and talking about them. I actually like uncovered on my laptop, like the first iteration of what we had for Cosmoform. And it's just, so different to what, what we ended up doing, which is really fascinating to kind of track that process mainly because it was so long ago, but just to think that there's the thing that you see people not involved in the process might think that like, you know, we just, I just sat down one weekend uh, with a coffee and just like churned out this, this essay based on research I'd done, but it's really this evolving, changing thing. And I think that's, due to the fact that I have multiple perspectives on it and Eamon also has multiple perspectives on it and that's what makes it interesting.
2: In answer to your question for me like a lot of this design was born out of my desire to design the type of design that I like you know I've, I've worked in design studios and agencies and um, in when you're in a professional capacity like that there's always a client and there's other other demands on your work your boss your creative director art directors photographers uh, etc etc and and there can often be various different people on the client side as well so when you're a professional designer it's very rare that you can design something where you call all the shots and you're not really answerable to anybody Now that has its pros and cons the cons are that it can be quite terrifying and you can feel quite isolated when you're designing and there's nobody giving you feedback sometimes feedback client feedback even if it's negative can be very helpful to a design process because it can put you on the right path or just jolt your thinking in a way that makes you that leads to other creative um, realizations so the kind of idea of designing purely for myself is what kind of um, motivated me to to start this in the first place and also the the relationship with with Cormac what it it does provide for me as a designer is just a very strong grounding foundation for me to work on you know these days design has gotten very 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 visual and it's slightly become kind of unhitched from any strong well content really like uh, most designers are on Instagram and uh, as a designer, I follow thousands of designers on Instagram and you can flick through Instagram and just see design after design after design, an endless amount of design. And it doesn't really give you the time to look into whether it's if the design is for anything. It could just be some random expression that some designer has decided to post. And I think it's kind of watered down a lot of design. A lot of design is just design for design's sake. There's no real Point of it, um, it's not trying to visually communicate anything substantial. So what Cormac's essays and his writing provides me is something very concrete, something that's full of ideas, figures, and, and theories, and and buildings, and it, it creates a wealth of things for me for me to draw upon, and kind of grounds what I'm what I'm trying to do in in the real world.
1: And you're also working in print, so you're you're publishing things, so they exist physically too. Um, exactly. And I mean, I know we're at a moment where there is a consistent and constant discussion about the death of print mm. or even, you know, within architecture, let's just say, even, and the difficulty in sustaining contemporary journals or magazines that are printed as opposed to digital. So it's obviously, I mean, you're not you're not producing volumes of these yet, but but you're obviously declared in the world of print. So Do you have any view on that? And I mean, for both of you, um, because Cormac, this will exist in in wider architectural discourse as well about the value of of it. Um, And do you think it's a value to audiences if you presumably are speaking beyond both of your disciplines with this work or attempting to or hoping to, you know, that this has value to the people who work in the Met building and the people who engage with Fibsborough and the wider community. Why why print is so
2: worth it? Um, Yeah, it's an interesting question for me beyond the the craft element of it it's um i just i personally i think it's a more serious expression when when you print something um it takes on a certain levity that i think could be lacking in uh, in online um publications i think when you're printing uh, f- for starters it's expensive it's it's not cheap you have to take into consideration all the material costs um but also you have to get it right first time so there's pressure to really consider everything you're doing that i don't think exists online you know if you if you make a few typos or you make a you make a, a reference to a book that's incorrect you can go online and just change it it's not a big deal um in print the knowing that it's going to exist in the real world um and that people are going to pay money for it and have it in their hand and scrutinize it and read it. It just kind of, um, it makes it more real and it kind of raises the stakes, I think, in a healthy way, in a way that makes you consider things more deeply and really question your decisions. And and I think all of that is a benefit to the, the final product.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I mean, I, I like to think that they're both extremely valuable um, and, and like, you know, there's a huge advantage to just the proliferation of material you can get from digital publications and, and blogging. And and it, it's a completely different animal, but that's not to say it's not as valuable in, in terms of like when Eamon describes flexing his design muscles. I think a lot of people kind of flex their creative and, and writing critical muscles um, by publishing things online. But when you kind of get to the craft, as Eamon described, of Uh, a printed object, I I think of it like chiseling something in stone and that, you know, you have to really be able to stand with what you're saying as an author, if if it's going in print. And and I I have found that from, from doing this work with Eamon that, you know, we get a lot more critical and constructive feedback, which is great from something that's printed, as opposed to something that goes up online someone might read it and disagree with it and then forget about it because there's just like an ocean of material online that's constantly changing and and superseding itself. So I think print is really important. And I think there's a sort of evolution there that like, you know, a lot of people use online material to kind of explore and, uh, and find their own voice. And then ultimately will use that to kind of make printed output, which, which you know, is something that then they have to allow it to be scrutinized, as, as Eamon said. And I think that's really important for people's development as writers as well.
1: Finally, maybe, and this is never an easy question, but apart from money, which um, everybody needs to work and to sustain kind of practices like this, if one kind of provoked the argument by saying publishing about architecture is still maybe a little bit nascent in Ireland, um, it does exist, but it is not has, it, it's, it's not sustained in any, let's say, sustainable way compared to other creative practices, which have journals that exist independent, let's say, of the profession. And given that you're both arguing, or and I think quite clearly arguing, why, why there's value in print and publication, and also the evidence would suggest that this kind of intersection between architecture and graphic design and the two worlds is productive in terms of contributing to our knowledge base or our experience of both things what might help sustain that culture or build it do you think
0: i I think i could say there's i can think of hundreds of uh my contemporaries and architects who don't think to use their writing abilities to produce something like this you know it's like as we were saying earlier it's like you really have to put passion and time into it and make it happen but I think some people expect someone to tell them to kind of take that decision and and really commit to something, whereas no one no one told Eamon to put three years into into these projects. Like you know, he just decided it was something he wanted to do. So I think what would really help forward this medium is that if more people gave up their time uh, and you know started contributing to it, and then kind of a, we had more of a a library of um, similar things. I think it would be kind of more common and um, accepted because I think it's important that like while there is not many examples of things like this in Ireland like I often look at like open house and events like that and you know I've done tours in open house and there's just such a huge public interest in our buildings and when you, when you do these tours you sort of expect to meet a lot of architects um, coming along to kind of you know kick tires and, and have a look at it but it's it's more often than not just people in the public who, who want to see a building and, and kind of have their own stories to share and, and, and things to tell. And like, we certainly found that, I think, I Eamon, with the um Forgotten Frontier when, when we launched it and everything, that like the vast majority of people who were talking to us about it and interested in it were not from necessarily a design background. Like, you know, it, and, and that's partly due to the fact that Fizzware has such a strong sense of community. But, you know, it, it really... Is something that people are interested in and there is a market for out there but it's just i guess maybe the fact that designers tend to work such crazy hours uh, and like live for the job that they don't put their spare time into uncommissioned projects like this like we do
2: <laughs> yeah i think you're right i i would agree that there's an appetite for this type of thing creating these zines it does take time and, and money it's quite um, a long process, so maybe there is an opportunity for um, an online platform that 's a little bit more quick moving where you can have a dialogue about architecture and maybe something like that would kind of encourage more people to write about it to to get
0: involved what 's also cool though as well about like Cosmoforum is that you know um, the artist that was commissioned to do the drawing is based in France right Amy? that's correct yeah 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 so it's kind of like you know there's also an opportunity to think beyond ireland and and to start to have conversations with other people in europe i mean like we're writing here about a um swiss building so like half the half the publication is sort of like in switzerland so like it's it's sort of a thing where um there is a huge community online of writers and and bloggers and, and artists and creatives who Are all interested in this and i think you know it's interesting to kind of bring perhaps someone not familiar with a building like this in to sort of um interpret it in a way that we did with the um, illustration and i think that would also help if if people started to like network a bit like um with people that they might never really meet in person but i think that's more normal now in quarantine you just sort of you don't have to have in-person meetings anymore so i think encourage people as well to sort of like you know broaden their horizons in that sense and and you know why not work with someone on the other side of the world world even um i'm not in ireland right now and you know we i've still been collaborating with eamon that's the beauty of technology is that something you can do pretty easily
1: there are so many more buildings this pair could write about and share with us in their particular interpretive print format and i hope they keep going If you are interested in other stories of buildings, you might like the More Than Concrete Block series of books, funded by Dublin City Council, edited by Ellen Rowley of UCD, and containing a whole array of brilliant, punchy biographies of Dublin's rather extensive 20th century collection of buildings. These biographies are written by Merlo Kelly, Carol Pollard, Natalie de Rocha, Shane O'Toole, and Ellen herself. Carol Pollard has also done a great book on Liam McCormick, as has Paul Larimore, if you're interested in learning more about this important Irish architect. Fibsburg Press has a new website, fibsburgpress.ie, and both scenes by Eamon and Cormac are there for purchase. So visit, buy them, give them as a gift, support Irish design. Thank you for tuning in this week. We have much more to come, including some exciting collaborations in development. Music, as always, is by the brilliant Rachel Lavelle. If you can this week, see what art and culture is on near you, and if you can, go. Now more than ever, artists, performers and designers need our love and our support. Just one person in a real room is far, far better than a Zoom room. And as we learn to live with this virus, we have to learn how to reach out and get out to a movie, a play, a talk, an exhibition. But whatever you do, stay safe.